Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 323, Baton, The Readiness is All. From mid-February 1942 until early April, the Filipino and American troops in southern Bataan waited to be attacked by the resurgent Japanese under General Homa. Indeed, during that time, Homa had been drilling his new arrivals on everything from heavy weapons that were also coming in to the specific needs of the coming attack against the enemy, who were still just south of the Pilar Bagak Road, a distance of some 13 miles. In contrast, the 79,500 Allied troops, of which 12,500 were American and the rest Philippine, wanted to do the same, that is, properly train, but could not, for a lack of food and medicine. Hence, the Japanese grew stronger and more confident, the defenders weaker and more secure in the knowledge that they would lose. The terrain held by Major General Edward P. King's Luzon Force was squeezed into an area just under 200 square miles. On the right half of the defensive line waited Major General George M. Parker's 2nd Corps. To his left was Brigadier General Albert Jones' 1st Corps. Besides these two corps, there was a reserve force of about 5,000 men, the service command, two coastal artillery regiments, the provisional tank group, two battalions of 75mm guns, along with engineer and signal troops. Of course, having so many people, including the 20,000 refugees, in such a relatively small area meant that, as King told Wainwright, enemy aircraft could drop their payloads at almost any point or place and hit something of military value. Again, an undesirable position to be in, save being a POW. Zooming in on Parker's 2nd Corps, about 28,000 men, which made up the right side of the defensive line, on the far right end was Colonel John Irwin's 31st Infantry, Philippine Army. This area was labeled Sector A. However, this unit was not stretched out from west to east, but rather north to south, from LeMay going to the north to Orion. So, should the enemy land on the beaches in this area, they would not be facing the end of a line who was facing the wrong way, but rather a reinforced defensive area with all their guns and weapons facing towards the approaching enemy. Below them, still along the coast, should the enemy try an even deeper amphibious landing, was a part of the 2nd Division, a company of tanks, and a battery of 75mm guns. This was Sector E. To the left, of the 31st Infantry's Sector A, was a provisional regiment made up of Air Corps personnel under the command of Colonel Irving E. Doan in Sector B. Doan strove mightily to bring these men up to fighting snuff. To the left of Doan's unit, stretching out going west about one mile, was the 31st Division, and helping them make up for the two regiments that were posted elsewhere was the remains of the 51st Division. This was Sector C. And ending General Parker's 2nd Corps line at Sector D was the 21st and 41st Divisions, Philippine Army, in front of Mount Samat. Behind them, in reserve, was the 33rd Infantry Division, though it was missing its 1st Battalion and two Engineer Battalions. 
As for General Jones' first core area of responsibility, the left half of the overall defensive line, going from east to west, as in picking up from where it connected with the left end of the second Corps line, the second constabulary regiment tied in their line with the first Corps. To the left of the second constabulary regiment was the 11th division, and continuing going left was the 1st Division, and finally the 91st Division, being supported by elements of the 71st and 72nd Infantry, all these being of Filipino troops. As the 2nd Philippine Constabulary Regiment was on the right flank of the left line, they were helping to shield the Pentagon River Valley. This valley led deep into southern Bataan, hence it could not be allowed to be taken by the enemy. As for the 1st Corps' far left flank along the western beaches, this was the area of the reinforced 91st Division, but they also had to guard the West Road, which went down the coast, turning ever more to the east to make for Mount Marivelles at the southern tip. Again, an important area that the enemy was sure to focus on. Like the far right flank, the beaches on the left side, below the main battle line, were guarded, should the enemy try to make an end run, by the 1st Constabulary Regiment, a battalion of the 88th Field Artillery and a smattering of Air Corps personnel. This area along the western beaches was labeled South Sector, and along the 1st Corps' part of the line, it was simply divided between left and right sector. Hilden Reserve was the 45th Infantry, of the Philippine Scouts, and the now horseless 26th Cavalry. All told, General Albert Jones had about 32,600 men under his command. Similar to the earlier attack further north, with General Parker's right line being broken into sectors A through E, and General Jones' left line being only broken into two sectors, along with the southern sector along the beach, it was hoped that this organized approach would assist with communications and reaction times to the enemy's coming attack. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's Yahoo Finance. As we have seen, the Japanese did an impressive job, with the help of the Americans being lax upon hearing of the attack on Pearl Harbor, 
of devastating the Allied air arm on Luzon on the first day of their attack. And now that combat was sure to come soon, General Wainwright relied on what he had left, namely artillery. General Jones' first corps had about 50 pieces, all told. Most were of 75mm caliber, whereas General Parker of the Second Corps considered the more likely target area had double that number. Again, the majority were 75mm guns. These were supported, at least along the beaches, by 31 naval guns. As impressive as the sounds on paper, a few realities negated their effectiveness. First was the difficult and uneven terrain. Added to this was the lack of proper air patrols, proper fire control, imperfect communications equipment, and too few motorized transports to move the guns to hotspots or to move them out of an area that was about to be overrun. Making life hard for the defenders, who were always on the lookout for the coming attack, Southern Bataan had hardwood timber trees 80 to 100 feet tall. The foliage closer to the ground was beyond thick and had plenty of thorny bushes to tear clothes or skin to shreds. So the only people who had a decent view were those Allied troops on Mount Samat, on the left side of General Parker's right line. Another way to think of it was that Samat was just right of the division between the two corps. Not that their field of vision was perfect, but they would be the first to see any large-scale movement by the Japanese. As the ground cover was so thick, the only way to traverse Southern Bataan was by the trails, or the coastal road to the east, or the less perfect one on the western side. Most of these trails went from north to south, but there were a few east-to-west trails that the Allies were currently using for communications. Point is, if the Japanese got past the main defensive line, once they came upon the trail system, they could disappear from Allied eyes and pop up somewhere else with little to no warning. And the Japanese soldiers' marching speed had already become a known quantity. And of course, there were the waterways, streams and rivers running all over the place in all directions. But the major river for the Allies was the Pentagon, which runs north as it comes down Mount Samat. This is what Wainwright was using to divide his two corps. And it was these very streams that Wainwright was hoping would slow down the enemy if they got this far. After the intense battle of the pockets, the Allied officers went back to training their men. Jungle warfare was different than combat in other terrains, and the Filipino and American troops had learned this the hard way. Here, with foliage overhead and trees and vines all over the place, planes and artillery mattered less. No, here, the infantryman came to the fore. Only he could project real power here, and more importantly, hold a piece of land. Thus, the men were ordered to only carry their gun, ammo, hand grenades, shovel, but there were too few of these, and their medical kit. Anything else was a luxury that these weakened men could not afford to carry. The next part of the training had to do with learning to fight the Japanese specifically. Because the Filipino troops had instilled in them for years was mostly close order drill, that is, getting around in a tight, neat formation, 
So their American officers had to keep reminding them not to hide behind a tree when they came upon the Japanese. No, it was better to lie down to shoot. This message was slowly sinking in. Next, the men had to learn not to fall for the enemy's tricks. Like when the Japanese purposefully fired their artillery at the same time that the Allies did. This would cause the frightful men on the front line to think that their own artillery was coming down on them. Hence, they would run away. Another Japanese trick was pretending to be dead, so the starving Allied troops would search their bodies or baggage for anything of value. Roughly half the time, this was when the Japanese troops would rise up and begin shooting or bayoneting their unsuspecting quarry. Lastly, the local troops had to have beat into their heads for their own good. The idea of, when on patrol, the units needed to stay connected with each other. The enemy had proven themselves most effective in finding gaps and exploiting them, and the Bataan jungle was a good place to separate people. Hence, they were told, when on patrol, move slowly, and when an enemy foxhole was found, several men would fire continuously at that target so those inside would keep their heads down, while one lucky man was chosen to get in close to use his hand grenades. Anything less thorough would get men needlessly killed. And the men were reminded that artillery would probably not be there to save them. Again, it was all down to the infantryman, his weapon, his nerves, and the science of jungle warfare. Of course, there were going to be light tanks, but true cooperation between the men and the machines was still being worked out, made even harder by the terrain. The men were told to walk behind the tank, but keep an eye out for the Japanese, who liked to stay hidden until the tank passed by so they could then attack the infantry. So the order of the day was to stay very close to the back of the tank, and it would be moving slowly to give the men a chance to locate the enemy. Then the tank could do its job while being protected from a close-up attack by the supporting infantry. All of this was nice, but it would be best if the enemy never got past the main defensive line. Hence, officers were constantly inspecting the Orion-Bagak line. Now, some things could not be helped, given the lack of time and equipment, like the short fields of fire. However, the men were ordered to improve the locations of their foxholes and their stringed-up barbed wire. So engineers were busy in February and March to make the defensive line that much stronger. Lastly, the service units were told to be ready to dash to the beaches so those more experienced units could go where they would be needed. Luzon Commander General King was thinking, if a breakout of the enemy did occur, every man Jack would be needed to stop them and, hopefully, push them back. Meanwhile, the Japanese under Homa, the men who had been through the Battle of the Points and the Battle of the Pockets, were not doing much better. Held by the end of March, some 13,000 of these troops were on their backs with non-combatant injuries mostly malaria. By the third week of February, Homa was alarmed by the small number of men he had who were fully operational. And now their diet was cut down to just 23 ounces, besides whatever they could find or steal from the locals. Not a recipe 
to stave off an illness. Further, Tokyo, i.e. Imperial General Headquarters, was not pleased with Homa's performance, or lack thereof, so far. As such, they made some changes to his staff. First, General Maeda, Homa's chief of staff, was replaced with Major General Takaji Wachi. Then the operations and training officer was replaced, and then the supply officer. General Homa had just been put on notice. The good news, though, were the replacements flooding onto Luzon. Soon the 65th Brigade and the 16th Division, recently badly bloodied, were being brought back to full strength. As for General Nara, commander of the 65th Brigade, he was given 60 officer replacements and another 3,500 men. The same could be said for the 16th Division. But the best news for Homa was an additional division, specifically the 4th, led by Lieutenant General Kenos Kitano from Shanghai. However, Homa soon realized that the 4th was lacking men, anti-tank guns, and two field hospitals. However, beggars cannot be choosers. Lastly, there was Major General Kamichiro's Nagano's detachment of about 4,000 men from the 21st Division. As we have seen during the lull, General Homa was receiving impressive amounts of new artillery pieces, so much so that he was also given the 1st Artillery Headquarters to coordinate it all. This, along with the two heavy bombardment regiments, about 60 twin-engine bombers, soon had him thinking of launching his offensive in early April. In fact, his final plan was finished on March 22nd. But this is where the whole thing gets interesting. As has happened before and will happen again, Homa's plan was based on faulty intelligence. First, he thought he was only facing some 40,000 enemy troops, and since they had defied him back in February, he was weighing the enemy more mighty than they seemed. In other words, better safe than sorry. So, and again, he did not know the true distribution of the enemy forces. The idea was to form up on a narrow front as close to Mount Samant as possible and push through the defensive line and keep going until that height was taken. From there, Homa would direct his men to take the next serious defensive line, again, this was his assumption, which was at Mount Lemay, about five miles or eight kilometers south by southeast of Mount Samat. These two heights would give the attackers a solid view of what was going on around them. If needed, in taking Mount Lemay, a separate force would head down the East Coast Road to hit it from two different directions. Finally, with both heights taken, the final push would begin to take the Marivelles, about 7 miles or 11 kilometers further south at the southern end. So again, the plan was to use the preponderance of artillery and planes, along with their troops, to overwhelm the center of the defensive line and go for Mount Samat. This would lead to the end of the resistance in Sandar Patan, and after that, it would just be a matter of mopping up. Then, Corregidor would swiftly be visited by the victorious invaders. On March 23rd, the attack plans were sent out to the commanders, General Kitano's 4th Division had the honor 
of carrying out the main assault in front of Mount Samat. Meanwhile, General Nara's 65th Brigade would cover the 4th Division's right or west flank, leaving General Nagano's detachment from the 21st Division to cover the left or east flank. This left General Morioka and the 16th Division to make a feint on the western or left section of the defensive line, that is, General Jones' 1st Corps. Now that the date of attack, April 3rd, had been set, starting on March 24th, the main defensive line would be bombed daily by General Makami's 22nd Air Brigade and naval aircraft. The artillery would join in during the day, but five hours before the attack itself, they were to fire continuously. With this set, the last thing to consider was the time the attack would commence. General Nara, having gone toe-to-toe with the Filipino and American troops, suggested dusk. To attack any earlier would allow the Americans to respond with their, to date, impressive artillery. However, another officer, recently arrived, wanted to start in the morning. The compromise was 3 p.m. When it came to the main attack, General Nara and his 65th Brigade would head south on Trail 29, just to the east of the line dividing the two corps, that line being the Pentagon River. However, one unit of his brigade would cross over to the 1st Corps side to keep contact with the 16th Division there that was carrying out the feint. Nara was to rush to the west side of Mount Samat to make sure no enemy troops went up or down the height. As for the center thrust of the main attack, again, this would be carried out by the 4th Division, but broken into two columns. The left column, from the Japanese perspective, led by Infantry Group Commander Major General Taniguchi, would head right through the center of Sector D, that of Brigadier General Maxim S. Lowe, and make for Mount Samat. The right wing of the 4th Division would be led by Colonel Haruji Morita, and they would head south on the right end of Sector D by using Trail 4. Hence, Maxim Lowe's Sector D would bear the responsibility of holding back the enemy. Not that the Brigadier knew this. This left the 16th Division and the Nagano Detachment to act in a supporting or feigning role. To hopefully catch the defenders off guard, three days before the main assault, General Morioka would take most of his 16th Division with tanks and artillery and start an attack on the 1st Corps' line to the left or west. Their job was more keeping the enemy in front of them busy versus their actual destruction. However, General Morioka was told to be ready to shift his men east to help trap and then mop up any remaining resistors. Thus, all was in place. General Kitano, recently arrived, stated that all before them would fall, and quickly. Homa wanted to believe this, but the enemy had earned his respect over the last few months. Oh, they would be triumphant, of course, but how long would it take, and how many men would he lose? That was the question. So his response to Kitano was a thoughtful grunt. Of course, of all of this, the Allies knew nothing. But they started piecing the puzzle together when contact with the enemy started increasing 
during the second week of March. To be sure, they were just patrols clashing, but these clashes grew in intensity. By the last week of March, the Japanese were only 1,000 yards from the Allied line. If any doubt remained in General Wainwright's mind as to Homa's intention, this was cleared up during mid-March, when messages placed in empty beer cans were dropped on the defenders. In part, the message read that the Allied officers should be proud of their men for having fought so valiantly. But now, the Japanese had enough men and materiel to put to rout your forces, or wait for the inevitable starvation of your troops. No, Homa continued, be sensible and follow the defenders of Hong Kong, Singapore, and the Netherlands East Indies in their acceptance of an honorable defeat. For if the defenders did not surrender, then the Japanese were free to take any action whatsoever. As March melted into April, the men of the 4th and 16th Divisions, the Nagano Detachment, and the 65th Brigade moved forward ever closer to their jump-off points and closer to the Allied defensive line.